for June 20th, 2011. It's the Overthinking It Podcast, episode 155. Jim Morrison, Lizard King of the North. Welcome to the Overthinking It Podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. I am your host for this week, Peter Fenzel, replacing Matt Rather, who's on a hunting expedition deep in the far north for the infamous Abominable Snowman. Uh, Actually, I think he lived in the Himalayas, right? The Yeti? So I guess if he's in the far north, he's hunting polar bears or something. Uh, Anyway, regardless, he is not here with us tonight. Uh, I think the the Yeti's joined the 21st century and is, is really a jet setter at this point in time. So he should go to LaGuardia International Airport to hunt the Yeti? Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Like flying out on a DC-10? Like, uh, yeah. yeah that is, those prices are abominable. So is the you know, you, you know what you don't want to see is a Yeti in a backscatter uh, x-ray. That's just, <laughs> it's really disturbing. Surprisingly thin. Very slim, the Yetis, underneath all the hair. They're very svelte. Uh, they, just, <laughs> they just look a little bit thicker because fur is not slimming uh, for me. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so I'm here with an elite squad, an elite tactical squad of three overthinkers this week as we celebrate Father's Day, our favorite holiday devoted to the producers of male gametes and those who raise us and play catch with us and do a variety of other nice things as we grow up. So overthinking it, we'd like to thank our fathers, uh, especially also in the shadow of the season finale of Game of Thrones, where all fathers are treated oh so well, uh, and pose this question to the panel. If... First, by some chance, for some reason, your own father had to be replaced by a father from popular culture. Who would you pick? We're going to start with Josh McNeil. Josh, this is a solemn question for a serious day. Who's your daddy? And what does he do? <laughs> what does he do? Fair enough. Fair enough. We'll go with the Arnold angle, as it were. As, as, you know, as, as time that is ripped from the headlines. Definitely. Uh, you know, I was trying to think of something uh, that, that was sort of less obvious, but I, I don't see how you can really beat Darth Vader. Uh, oh, yeah? Yeah, I mean, if, if you're going to sort of discover a brand new father, uh, you want somebody who's, like, you know, strong, setting a good example, uh, you know, really sort of strict but but loving, I think, ultimately. Yeah. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, feel like he used, uh, I feel like he read, you know, a lot of those books in the 80s where they were, like, talking about uh, – you know, how not to hit your kids, but instead to, to create, like, you know, creative and spoiled brats. And uh, that's, I feel like that's uh, that's what I want out of a dad, is that and really heavy breathing. So, <laughs> Well, you bring that to the podcast every week, Josh. And we're I know, to- yeah, see? <laughs> it, it, it comes full circle. Excellent. So, but wait, but Darth Vader chops Luke's hand off. Uh, spoilers. Uh, it's one of the less surprising things that happens in Return in uh, Empire Strikes Back, right? Is is uh, Darth Vader chops off his his boy's hand? So you're saying that that he's a tough love kind of dad, or that he's more kind of a touchy feely dad because he tries to reach out with the force more often than with the belt or the wrench? Well, I feel like it, it's both sides, right? You know, yeah. you, you you want a little discipline, otherwise you grow up, uh, you know, I guess undisciplined is the <laughs> obvious word. Uh, but yeah, so you know. Luke was uh, Luke was getting pretty uh, well. First of all, he was awfully whiny. Like clearly, he'd been yeah. missing some some strong parenting. Yeah, it's true. Uh, throughout, and uh, you know, the, the, if you if you're gonna try and take down Dad, if you're gonna go all Freudian like that, he's, he's got to step up and and let you know uh, who's the alpha dog. And uh, you know, Luke's Luke's gonna have his time. Uh-huh. Okay, but little little punishment, and you know, it's not like he, he let him die. So, <laughs> it's not like he chopped off both know. hands. He only chopped off the one. 
Yeah, and then when, yeah, and then when the emperor is like shooting him with lightning, you know, like I want a dad who's gonna step in and take the lightning bolt for me. And I- <laughs> <laughs> now we get to it. Now we get to it. Now we reveal your tragic, uh, your traumatic childhood lightning strike that you've exactly. been trying from all these years well you know they say it doesn't strike twice especially if your father is you know there to protect you which is an important thing in this day well, unless you're our friend brian trippy who has been hit by lightning twice oh really i had no yeah. idea yeah. man he's tall that's probably why yeah uh, <laughs> that and all the fillings uh anyway uh we'll jump over to, oh by the way josh where are you are you in philadelphia now i am in the okay. city of brotherly love uh Another Fratadelphia, what is it? What would it be? Uh, Padradelphia uh, is a lesser-known city that I'm looking forward to visiting. Uh, well, that's because Padre, that's Spanish, right? And Philadelphia is Greek. What's, the, what's Greek for dad? I don't even know. We have to look that up. We have to frantically Google in Wikipedia. It is what we do here. It is our job. So Greek for dad is – oh, crud. Those are in English letters. Moving on to Mark <laughs> Papaphilia, paterophilia. Anyway, uh, wait, um, Delphia, not philia. Delphia, that's right. Oh, man. Oh, that is so bad. We're going to get it. going so down so fast. Oh, my goodness. This oh, is... how I long for the protective embrace of Matt Rather. <laughs> Do you shut your mouth before I smack it? I'm, oh, I'm your daddy on this podcast. I'm, I'm sorry, no, I'm no. sorry. Okay, been... so, <laughs> my, uh, okay, so Josh had a traumatic lightning striking experience. That he wants mm-hmm. rectified by uh, by his fictional father. Yeah. Uh, I guess my equivalent. Well, it doesn't quite work that way, but what the heck. Um, my equivalent of childhood trauma is growing up as an immigrant. So I want my pop uh, culture fictional father to help me cope with that as well. So that's why I'm going with Vito Corleone. <laughs> all, this is also some some low hanging fruit here, right? Famous fathers in pop culture: Darth Vader, Vito Corleone. Yep. Um, so you know in all seriousness right so uh, as you know that i'm the only uh you know non-white person who's on this podcast i represent right. various minorities at this table um we and prefer, we prefer to refer to you as people of asian uh, right? yeah that's 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 cool too um yeah, yeah so no in all seriousness being in you know the son of an immigrant uh, son of immigrants is an important part of my identity i i think it uh it so I've experienced sort of secondhand their struggles to integrate into this country and, you know, have received from them this sense that, you know, you have to struggle uh, in order to uh, to make it in this country and work twice as hard as everyone else, et cetera, because, you know, you're you know at a disadvantage and all that type of stuff. Um, and we see that, right? You know, that's the sort of the lesson that Vito tries to impart onto his sons. Not quite successful in it, but at least he's trying. Right. He's, got, he's right. got the right message, right? Also, your parents are bootleggers. Which, yeah, uh, I think it, really ties it all together. My, uh, my my father is actually a nuclear engineer, and in a way, in a way, <laughs> nuclear engineering is just like bootlegging. In How that, so? uh, you know, like sort of harnessing the power of the atom is kind of like bootlegging, right? It's like taking something and sort of uh, uh, it's uh, routing it in a way that it was not in- originally intended to be routed. Oh. I was going to say that nuclear engineering is just like bootlegging because in the end you just serve John F. Kennedy. Um, but that's another matter entirely. With <laughs> that's a little too soon? I'm Whoa. sorry. No, no, it's good. It just, it's one of those you have to think about for a second. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what else do nuclear engineering and, and, and bootlegging have in common other than like a sort of affinity for the way that matter interacts with matter and energy with energy? Uh, not much. There's not a, much. Well, there's a large like tubular contraption involved in both. <laughs> 
I'll tell. I'll show you. Never mind. We're gonna keep this a family because <laughs> it's Father's Day, and we want it to be for our daddies. You know, this is dedicated to them. Uh, so yeah, so there we go. So so also good thing about having Corleone as your dad, uh, never get scurvy. He is a big proponent of proper consumption of vitamin C, which is important. Always eating those oranges. Eat your fruits. Uh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Got to keep those in your mouth while you're running around in the garden or whatnot. Um, cool. And I'm gonna go with uh, I'm gonna go with the Dennis Quaid father composite, who is going to rescue me from slavers on a distant planet uh, while growing an awesome beard, and also save me from the encroachment of global warming, and furthermore, speak to me over a radio. From Beyond the Grave, which is a pretty awesome series of things to do, especially if you're doing them at the same time. Uh, yeah, The Day After Tomorrow is a pretty strange father-son story, but I, I feel like one of the things I like about the father-son story in The Day After Tomorrow is that, like, the things that the world presents this father-son pair with to deal with are, like, not only in themselves absurd, but so much more absurd than their fairly pedestrian relationship is right it's it's like you know you have your relationship with your dad you sort of prepare for certain things so rather than a sort of field of dreams kind of pop culture father where it's like oh we played catch or we wanted to play catch now we get to play catch there's a certain cogency and symmetry to all this uh the world doesn't necessarily care about your symmetry or appropriateness and you have to deal with what comes at you with the relationships that you got whether that's uh the drox and their asexual reproduction in enemy mine or, uh, or the day after tomorrow with its more uh, global warming, uh, global cooling, uh, rushing down the streets of New York, as it were. If you, if you run fast, fast enough, you can, get out, you can escape the, the freeze that's rushing that's down true. the streets of New York. Mm-mm-mm. I got my quids mixed up there for a second, and I was thinking about Randy Quaid. <laughs> I did say Dennis Quaid. Did I say Dennis Quaid? Actually, you Randy Quaid. Dennis, but I was confused. But I was thinking the father in Independence Day. <laughs> life, but then save civilization and thus completely like exonerate himself for a lifetime of drunken. Yeah, that's right. And you get to ride around in a totally like, cool RV. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. Awesome. I can fly. I'm a pilot. <laughs> <laughs> He's actually a pretty cool dad character, right? Yeah, because he does love his kids, but at the same time, like, his love for his children doesn't really take on any sort of supernatural capacity as it tends to in these sorts of things. Um, and he's still kind of an F-up, but... Uh, I don't know. It's kind of cool. Of course, he himself is so crazy, but that's kind of a digression that we don't need to necessarily have to get into. I wonder... You know what would be interesting? I've never thought about this. What kind of father did Dennis and Randy Quaid have... That it produced these, like, <laughs> totally diverse depictions of fathers. Like, they've both depicted, like, really intense dads uh, in movies. You know, ones who have gone above and beyond and sacrificed themselves for people um, and all this other stuff. Uh, let's see. Their father was William Rudy Quaid, who was an electrician and a second cousin of Gene Autry, <laughs> which is kind of interesting. Uh, I was, Gene I was Autry- about to say, was he a screenwriter, perhaps? <laughs> yeah, I was, I was going to go with talent agent, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you guys know who Gene, Gene Audrey is. Gene Audrey is uh, is the singing cowboy. Oh, yeah, of course. Like, <laughs> yeah, which is great. That makes a lot of sense, I think. If your dad is like, uh, you know, the friends of the singing cowboy, and uh, and he gets these two guys who go off in these really divergent directions. He's like, uh, hey, cuz, I'm going to come over and rewire your dimmer. Uh, <laughs> my son's massive Hollywood careers. Uh, yeah, exactly. Well, worked out nicely for them. Awesome. And they're apparently Irish and Cajun. These are the things you can learn from Wikipedia, which or, is really exciting. And, Irish and the over- podcast. That's true. We're more curators. We, we curate the content, and we analyze it for you, and we provide entertainment, which is also of a high value. 
and this is good stuff. This is what we do. Uh, and we also plug our own stuff, so download the overview. That's the last time I'm going to say it. It's awesome. Ghostbusters 2 is the best, uh, as is our commentary on it. Anywho, so, Father's Day. Now, guys, do we want to get right into talking about Game of Thrones? Talking about our dads on Game of Thrones? Or do we want to dwell on dads a little bit more before we move on to it? I was kind of hoping for an hour-long sort of free group therapy session, but oh, really? Let's, well, tell we, we could do Game of Thrones instead. Thrones instead. Tell me about your father. <laughs> okay, so imagine that your father is a dragon, and he's eating your head. Uh, wait, no, that's I don't think that would be therapeutic at all. Um, sort of a Jungian approach. The, the overthinking a collective subconscious is a deep, dank, like crypt full of the statues of the kings of the north with their uh, with their swords across their laps. Um, cool. So, so, warning, fair warning, there will be Game of Thrones spoilers galore in this podcast. We may end up doing a special Game of Thrones feature where all of the different podcasters who've uh, and contributors to Overthinking It were big fans of the George R.R. R. Martin series and the TV show will get together and really hash out the details. But this week, we're concerned with the event of the Game of Thrones season finale. And also, it's relevance to Father's Day because, as you guys know, last call, huge spoilers. Huge spoilers. In the second to last episode of Game of Thrones, huge spoilers. Right before we got to this week's episode, the the honorable, straight shooter, protagonistic, protective, honest, uh, and thus doomed father figure of Eddard Stark had his head chopped off for his uh, part in the balance of power and perceived or manufactured treason against the king, or actual treason, why not? Uh, but at any rate, in a, in, a, in a move that shocked everyone who'd never read the books and um, gave everybody who'd read the books a, a, a deep sense of smug satisfaction and self-satisfaction. Um, I mean, I don't know, jo- Josh, what was your reaction when you heard about that? When you, when you, when, when you were Because talk- you have friends over and you watched the show, right? We did, yeah. Um, I think you know, we, it was a moment. Uh, all the people who come over and watch it at my house have read the books, so it was sort of uh-huh. a moment we were looking forward to because it is sort of the the climactic moment of the first book and the first series. I thought they handled it really well, uh, yeah. and the opening shot of this episode, which was just that sword, which was his own sword covered with his blood and presumably spinal fluid, uh, was pretty just an intense way to to kick it off. Yeah. Um, but the the you you I, you made an interesting point about sort of when he dies, you're kind of glad. Um, I suppose there's a really, I mean, it's it's an end, yeah. It's well, no, but I, I, I mean, he's sort of uh, he's sort of a villain character in a lot of ways. Just like he's uh, he's sort of a pure like in in the way that the Puritans can be a villain character, you know, villain characters. Mm-hmm. Um, just so committed to honor that he leaves all practical sense behind. Yeah. Um, like you know, to massive amounts of of death and suffering for his family and pretty much everyone else in the in the world. So, uh, sort of a cathartic moment in some ways. Mm-mm-mm. Yeah, it's interesting. I, yeah, yep. I just wonder what Freud would say about me saying that. But um, go ahead. <laughs> I think Freud would probably have something to say to the fact that ice is like a six foot long penis that they chopped his head off with. Ice is the name of the sword, by the way. Uh, the giant sword. Uh, they really de-emphasize the swords in the show, which I think is probably a good thing because, you know, these sorts of things. And the food, too. Oh, my goodness. I really want to um, really uh, uh, 
oh gosh, what was that? Oh man, I want to remember. Um, there's this wonderful website, and maybe I'll search for it as the podcast goes on, where these women who live outside of Boston cook all the food that appears in the Game of Thrones uh, Song of Ice and Fire books. And it's all like tr- really decadent, rich food. It's all like, you know, like the quail eggs and everything's in butter and like, you know, there's the fried bread and the ham. It's like either it's hearty or it's, you know, it's medieval and delicious and things. But anyway, um, the many things that are in the books that the TV show didn't really emphasize, one of them is the really dis- long descriptions and discussions of the different kinds of steel and, and the different kinds of swords and the weapons. And another one is like the food, which is depicted on screen in pictures and not actually talked about. But yeah, I mean, I think... The, the I, books um, do have like a very Bravo Channel element to them that has been cut out of the HBO series. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, uh, it's like um, oh gosh... Tyrion I for the Stark guy. I don't really know how to say it. Uh, <laughs> Wait, does, does one of the characters say, I didn't come here to make friends? <laughs> exactly. that's, that's what I see on Bravo shows a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, this it, yeah me, it's, just as a side note, I have not seen anything of Game of Thrones. I haven't read the books. I don't know a damn thing about Game of Thrones. So I'm just going to make snarky comments like that here and there <laughs> just to keep the discussion grounded. Please, please make them liberally because really make, <laughs> you really need to take us down a peg. Because one of the things about this series that it ends on, and I think this is probably the uh, – because if we're talking about the last episode and the end of the season as kind of a cultural phenomenon, um, whether it sort of earns the solemnity of the last episode or whether the sol- – because the last episode – I don't know about you, Josh, but I found the last episode to sort of be fairly self congratulatory like it's a bit of a denouement and they sort of go through it's almost like you're absolutely right the the climax is is the death at the end of the previous episode and all of this is just sort of setting up the next the next season which they at this point i guess know that they have so well they announced it so they'll be called liars and nobody hbo is like ned stark and that they have you know uh, you know untrampleable honor that they will always hew to when it comes to the release dates of their television shows unless it's the sopranos um but but yeah no it's um it definitely felt like you know almost like the sh- to me at least it felt like the show was saying you just watched something that was really serious right like it, it, the tone of it um and, and cuz i think the moments because here's the thing. Here's the thing about the whole series of books is that the first book is the easiest one to make into a television show of the sort that you just watched. Right? I don't want to go into what happens in the second book, so the other seasons, um, except insofar as much as to say that that final tableau in the first episode is sort of a herald of things to come in the sense that like – because at the tableau of the end of the first episode, you see like some actual dragons, right? some actual baby dragons. And this, this whole season and this whole first book, there's been hovering on the fringes of civilization, which is a civilization of human beings – are very involved in realpolitik and very cynical on the edge of the civilization is the sort of like threat of magical incursion and like sort of magical invasions right like oh these these zombies are going to come and invade the whole world and and like oh these like these dragons might come back and like oh there's these witches and all this other stuff but it's all very peripheral right it's all very on the side of things and then at the end of the first season it's like oh look there are dragons now and does that mean that the second season has to be really different um does that mean that like we won't be able to see another season that's like this one uh you know what i mean and i don't want to go too much again into the events of the second season but it definitely felt like um this might be a stylistic uh game changer or a difficult thing to to continue you know what i mean well, yeah, I think so. I mean, there's, there have really only been two supernatural elements at all thus far. There was the sort of the zombie-type character at the wall, and then these dragons here at the end, and those are the only two things you've seen. Um, yeah. Which I think is kind of interesting. Like, One of the things I'm curious about is the, the surprising popularity of this show. I don't have numbers in front of me, but... It's. I think the ratings have been picking up with each episode, and I think uh, I, you know HBO clearly expects a second season to do very well. 
Mm-hmm. And it's sort of a... I'm wondering here if uh, if the fear of zombies and dragons has something to do with America's current two major fears, which are zombies in China. <laughs> <laughs> but we uh, uh, talk about that more. If it's the dragons leading the Dothraki hordes, I do think there's a, a, a sort of uh, sinophobia parallels to be had there. Yeah, true. But yeah, no, the tone is definitely going to have to change a little bit. Um, but even throughout the books, I don't. I think I can say this without spoilers. Like the supernatural elements, four books in, they're there, but they're they're never central. Yeah, um, they're sort of like they're the, they're the the motivating fears in many cases, but rarely actually sort of proximate causes of any of the action. Yeah. See, I'm actually just starting out on the third book now. Um, and yeah, and the second book really is like the first one in that there's only a few moments when the supernatural really steps forward and takes over and takes center stage. Um, and one of them is so totally freaking ridiculous that I can't imagine that it will be portrayed on screen in like a feasible way. But I hope that they surprise me with it. Um, and I think you might know what I'm talking about, but I'm not going to go into too much detail. But like there's these little – there's moments and then there's moments. Um, actually, I think there's two moments in the second book which are too crazy to really – portray on screen without like crazy like Hollywood special effects nonsense maybe even three but at any rate yeah I, I'm glad well, to hear that it kind of stays true but I feel like this series will solve that problem just by like surrounding those ridiculous scenes with gratuitous nudity yeah I mean don't underestimate that there was some not only was there gratuitous there was good gratuitous nudity in this show you know what I mean and I mean like it was gratuitous nudity that was like well because I saw an interview with uh, the actress who plays Daenerys Targaryen, and she was like, "Oh yeah, you know, I, when I when they and they asked her what about the nudity, I hear you're going to do nudity for the for the show," and she's like, "Oh well, yeah, it's HBO, so you know it's going to be tasteful." And of course, like in the first episode, she's naked a whole bunch of times. Is it in the second episode where she gets like you know roughly taken from behind by like the orientalized stereotype? <laughs> um, but it's very tasteful. Uh, but it was tasteful, and I think it's well presented. I think it's it's um. I, I, I don't know. It doesn't feel crass. I mean, it certainly feels like titillating and exploitative and like this is here to sort of, you know, Conan the, later Conan the Barbarian you by like, you know, taking the fantasy genre as an excuse to show people, you know, uh, thrilling erotic images. But at the same time, like it, it wasn't like when Tony Soprano goes to the strip club, right? Which is like the quintessential HBO brief nudity that you get your like ninety seconds of in there. Well, I um, think the stuff the stuff with that character, you're right, is not that. But then there are a number of sort of gratuitous whorehouse episodes. Yeah. Um, the the one where uh, the Peter Baelish character, I forget the the actor's name. He's no yeah. much stuff. But I like uh, to call him uh, Tommy Carcetti. Is his name actually? Yes, Tommy. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, the mayor of Baltimore and instructor yeah. of prostitutes. Uh, exactly. that, that that one scene was really sort of out there, um, where he's he is directing two prostitutes. He's basically teaching two prostitutes how to be prostitutes while discussing the the sort of ins and outs of power uh, with them. And it's a very that one was exploitative. That was just like, and yeah. you know, uh, it was. You know, I'm not generally opposed to gratuitous nudity, but in that instance, I was really sort of bothered by it. Um, yeah, yeah. Also, we were watching it, and like a number of girlfriends walked into a room at that moment, which was really an awkward scene for everybody. Um, <laughs> I, 
I kind of forgot that one because I remember while I was watching the show, my roommate came home, and I live with with two women uh, in a three bedroom, and um, I like had to mute the TV, and like I was like fast forwarding it, and I was trying to figure out how to because I had on DVR, I was trying to figure out how to fast forward through the scene because I couldn't have the noise playing. Like I didn't want my roommate to think that I'm watching pornography on the big screen TV in my living room by myself, which is not appropriate to do in a place where there's a mixed company, um, unless people are freaky deaky, of which we are not. Uh, and you know you can you can put that in ink as it were. But yeah, no, it, that that scene was over the top. I remember. I mean, I didn't really watch it per se, but uh, but yeah, that was definitely over the top. And I don't know. I wonder how much it has to do with with the audience. I mean, looking at the ratings now, it looks like the ratings uh, range. And this is through last week. Of course, this week's ratings aren't aren't in yet, at least for me. Uh, they range from the two point two million viewers to about 2.7 million viewers and two well no 2.2 million viewers for the first episode and the second episode and then it kicks up another 200,000 viewers for most of it sustains around 2.4 2.5 and then jumps up to 2.7 for the pointy end episode which i thought was probably the the best one overall like because that's the one george R. R. martin wrote himself and you could sort of tell um that it was a little bit better um right. Well, I, mean, I think I think we would have if you'd asked us sort of at the beginning of this if that was going to be the way those numbers went. I think yeah. very few people would have predicted that that was the case, right? Oh, so yeah. everybody, everybody thought like the fanboys and people who you know sort of are into Lord of the Rings and people hitting other people with swords stuff were going to watch it, and then like some of them would drop off. And it was like how many of them drop off was really the question of whether or not it got a second season. But right. the fact that it added half a million—I mean, the, what is that? That's like added twenty five percent onto what it got at the beginning. It's pretty huge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you've already, uh, they just picked up um, Tom Hanks's uh, Playtone company. Just picked up Neil Gaiman's American Gods, um, and sort of already has pledged to do a number of seasons of it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's sort of. I hope that this becomes a trend, and that people are sort of, you know, starting to embrace the genre a little bit more, and that we're going to be able to see sort of more. Let me let me throw one thing in here uh, from my observations that uh, one friend of mine in particular who I had not pegged at all to be the sort of you know watch the Lord of the Rings type of fantasy show I was just raving about Game of Thrones the other day I did get a chance to get in, uh, into it with her in terms of what exactly is appealing about it I mean and I also I know very little about the show besides from you know the fantasy themes and the nudity. Uh, and things like that. So I guess I'm going to ask that to you guys. Like, why is it that this is sort of coming out, breaking out of what maybe like a quarter of a single quadrant, right? If we sort of talk about our traditional quadrants being what old, young, and then male and female, right? Why is this, mm-hmm. you know, not just relegated to one uh, quadrant of a quadrant, but in fact is like reaching out to more quadrants? Mm-mm-mm. Well, I mean, let's also keep it in perspective. It didn't do nearly as as well as Boardwalk Empire did in terms of total viewers, uh, although it did seem to get a lot more buzz, and it doesn't do better than True Blood does. So it's not like this thing is sweeping the nation. I think it's one of those things that kind of the TV literati are kind of into, uh, and it do- is catching steam and has a certain share, like a certain mind share, but it's not like everybody's watching it. Um, but yeah, we got, but like you're asking what, like why, can you, can you sort of repeat your question one more time? Yeah, well, what is the what is the appeal beyond the hardcore fantasy audience? Mm-hmm. Well, because I don't well, think, I think this is necessarily. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead, Josh. I think it's, it has to do with uh, the characters, and in both the book and the TV show, there are just a, there are a lot of characters and a lot of really well drawn characters um, with sort of a number of dimensions to them, um, which is just you know still fairly even sort of through the TV renaissance of the last few years, it's still a fairly rare thing. 
Yeah. Uh, and this is one of very few places where you're able to get that in the sort of um, medieval type, you know, milieu. Um, it's like the Tudors was hugely popular, right? I think there's definitely a market for people, you know, in wearing doublets and having real personalities. Um, mm-hmm. There's... And, you know, be it uh, Boardwalk Empire was sort of a similar idea. Um, I think all of these shows really have the appeal in that they just sort of, it's a, it's a slightly more in-depth, intelligent, emotionally intelligent look at the world and different facets of the world. And this is the first time it's been done in this genre, so it's kind of exciting in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think I'll also lay a lot of the um, kind of the, the buzz-makingness of this show at the feet of Peter Dinklage who does such a good job in this first season. Now, of course, I think Matt Rather has said before that he has some issues with his dialect work. And after he said that in last week's podcast, I, was, I couldn't get it out of my head for the entire episode this week that the dialect does leave something to be desired for the various actors. Um, Not authentic Westerosian, right? Exactly. Though that wasn't the common tongue of the Seven Kingdoms at all. Like you guys, you were talking like you were fake English. Um, but uh, but yeah, no. I thought I thought that his character in this show, as well as his little person, right? You know, as and you know, as they call him a dwarf in the in the show, the imp. Um, but a fully realized character who is sort of authoritative, right? And and and. and lives and and exists and and wheels and deals in this world and is handsome you know and is like uh kind of dashing a little bit but it isn't played for for laughs it is something that's the thing on the show that feels totally new to me right like i mean yes it the, the idea that sean bean is doing a tv show where he has a giant sword and a fur skin over him is pretty freaking awesome like i'll watch that show but when the women i know who watch this show want to watch it it's because of him Right, because he's just this like totally new thing, uh, and so totally charming, and and I think realizes the character in a way that steps I would even say beyond what he does, what the character does in the book. Um, although I think that the cultural norms at play in television are a little bit different in terms of what happens when you depict someone as small, as opposed to when you describe them as small in words. Um, I mean, the the sight of a small person is such a different impact on the way that the character is communicated than the the reading about of a person like that. Um, I mean, I don't know, Josh. What do you think about that? What do you think about Tyrion in at least the first book and Tyrion in the first season of the television show? Uh, I mean, frankly, I think Tyrion in the books is one of my favorite literary characters ever. Mm. Um, okay, and 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 I th- but and so I sort of expected to be disappointed by the TV version and haven't been at all. Uh, oh, both okay. are really just excellent. Uh, it's just it's a it's one of the best. That actually, the whole family of uh, of his character, which are sort of the the villains really of the piece, are incredibly well drawn and are quickly sort of. Cease to be cease to be just villains and become sort of really complex characters with their own motivations and are just fun to watch. Uh, yeah. All of them. Mm-hmm. So I, I think uh, it would have been very easy to get them wrong, but the show has done a really good job of, of nailing it. Especially yeah. him. I mean, just like this. This uh, I, I would recommend to, to Mark and to everybody. You know, watch one show just for him. It's worth mm-hmm. seeing. Yeah, even if you don't get into the whole series, like it's, it's just it's a great piece of acting and writing um, comes together really well. Awesome. Uh, maybe I almost feel bad that I've because I, I what happens is I watch the show up through, gosh, maybe like the sixth episode, um, and then I found myself, or maybe the fifth episode, and I found myself um, 
reading, looking, like sneaking peeks on the internet at like wikis and pages about the characters because I like the characters so much. At which point, I realized I was going to spoil the whole plot of the books for myself. So I picked up the books at that point, and I've been catching up. And I finished, you know, the first book in like a week and a half or two weeks, and then plowed through the second one, which kind of isn't. These books are not the ones that you want to read super fast because a lot of stuff happens. There's a lot to remember, and there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of humanness. Um, of an unsavory sort that can pile up and make it difficult to sleep. But I'm on the third one now. But yeah, um, I guess maybe it took a little bit away from the character of Tyrion in the books that had already seen Dinklage's performance in the television show because it is a little bit different. I think that the character in the books is is much uh, – is described as uglier in a way that the character in the television show really isn't. Um, right. Yeah, and I, I mean I'm not just saying this out of like sort of you know man crush territory. Uh, I mean like seriously, the you know Dinklage does command attention on the screen as like a little a little lord, um, but he is he is much more sort of portrayed as sort of malformed uh, and and you know sort of hideous and hated um, in the books than he has been so far in the television show. Uh, like the scenes where where uh, Tyrion is on the wall with uh, Jon Snow. Those are some of my favorite scenes in the whole show so far. And uh, it's just, there's just this, this, you know, simpatico and this sense of, of, uh, uh, of kinship and kind of, you know, sort of mutual recognition that, that comes from a lot of charisma that he pours into the scenes. Uh, and those scenes in the book are a lot bleaker, I think. Um, maybe because, yeah, maybe, maybe the wall is sort of like war, and that famous thing is like, oh, it's hard to film war and make it make an anti-war film. It's hard, hard to make an anti-the-wall film because the wall is, is so freaking ridiculous and awesome of a place, even though it's this horrible place on the edge of the world where you don't get any good food. And unlike everybody else who's eating quail eggs and such. Seriously. Um, though everything's fresh because it's a giant ice wall. Um, <laughs> That's the, true. the thing I like about the character, and I, I'm, I feel like it's common, but I'm, I'm blanking on any other examples, I encourage you guys to jump in with them, but it's, it's sort of the character who's really like seen the worst and been treated really poorly and sort of instead of that becoming bitterness it became humor and became sort of protective of other people in that situation. Yeah, um, yeah. And I feel like those are always really beloved characters when they're done right and I just, ah, I can't think of one right now. Anybody oh, another, another character who like is kind of a jerk but because other people treat him like trash for being kind of... Um, smaller diminished in some way he then shows a streak of altruism for others at like key moments yeah i mean, I mean there's, yeah. there's there's like an element of mr miyagi to him yeah that's true that's true i, I almost want to say team rocket but that's not entirely appropriate uh from the, from the pokemon <laughs> franchise like he's like a little meowth like this little evil mastermind who every once in a while because the audience loves him so much and because he kind of recognizes other people have to deal with the same crap he has to deal with but maybe that's not a great example because i'm sure that a lot of meowth enthusiasts from like you know um, you know, mouthlovers.com or like Tyrion Lannister meowth slash fiction.org are going to come over and talk about how the character is totally different. Um, but yeah, I mean, well, I mean, Naruto is like that, uh, but he's not actually disliked. Um, and of course, everybody knows that uh, I talk about that show entirely too much, so I'll spare you guys now the ninja cartoon. Um, yeah, gosh, that's a good example. Mom, can, uh, let's see, I'm trying to think. And nobody from Star Wars is like that. Here's the thing. Whenever somebody suggests to me a character archetype of some kind, or like, oh, can you name a character who's like X? Um, I always default to Star Wars because there's, there's so many different kinds of types in that movie, those movies. Um, because there's so many characters, because the characters are so broadly painted, because everybody knows them, uh, and because well, it, they know it, those movies really well. 
Yeah, well, generationally, it's you know, it is to us what the Bible was to like the preceding twenty-five generations, right? Right. You could, <laughs> you could just you, you know, you could call someone a Jonah, and everyone knew what that meant. Right, um, right, right. And yeah. It's, uh, now we call someone a Jar Jar, and everyone knows what that means. <laughs> but that's not what the, it doesn't mean. This there's no are there any Jar Jars in Game of Thrones, which are what like horrible abominations that make everything worse for everybody. Um, or no, like p- characters that are meant to be sympathetic and liked, but are actually broadly hated, uh, which f- fouls up the way that the plot is structured. Um, this show doesn't really have too many of those, right? No, I don't uh, think so. Yeah, uh, there's there's Sansa, who I think you're kind of supposed to sympathize with, but which I just cannot force myself to do. In the show or in the books or both? Either one. Yeah. Just a miserable character. I mean, if we're talking about character archetypes, right? You know, you know Jar Jar is intended not intended to be a hated character, right? He's intended right. to be comic relief. Yeah. So and that's sort of like the almost the purest form of comic relief, right? You know, my 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 remembrance Great of Star Wars Episode mystery. One is, yeah. is is weak, but if I recall he just sort of bumbles around and doesn't really he, he sort of accidentally affects the plot, but he's like ninety ninety percent there for comic relief. Right. Yeah. I mean, I suppose the movie is pretty silly anyway. Uh, actually, speaking a uh, non sequitur, a brief non sequitur, if I might be so indulged on episode one, I got to see a filming of a scene from an upcoming Mark Wahlberg movie that involved episode one, The Phantom Menace, because they took the movie theater a few blocks away from my house, the Davis Square movie theater in Somerville, and they made it up to look like it was the premiere of episode one. And they had a whole line of extras dressed up in Star Wars costumes uh, and a huge crowd had gathered to watch the filming. And uh, uh, Marky Mark shows up, or sorry, Mark Wahlberg, uh, shows up in full Darth Maul face paint with a double-bladed lightsaber and, like, waits online. And there's, like, one shot where uh, a, a camera camera comes in on a crane and, and a dolly and like zooms in on him waiting online uh talking to the person on his right who is presumably the invisible and then cgi uh generated or the cgi generated is redundant uh, computer generated teddy bear that's going to be his sidekick oh, in the oh, oh this is ted. the fighter too isn't it it's a fighter too directed by wow Seth. yeah yeah yeah. no it's his movie <laughs> ted where uh a little boy wishes for his teddy bear to become alive and then it's 30 years later um, and he's Teddy Bear still alive, and he's trying to deal with relationships. Um, yeah, it's directed and, and has uh, Seth MacFarlane in it, and, and Mark Wahlberg, and Mila Kunis star. And they've been filming all over Boston, so uh, it was funny to see him in the face paint. That was kind of cute. Um, well, my, my reactions to that like swung wildly with almost every word you said. <laughs> I, should speak, I should speak slower. So Mark Wahlberg was dressed okay, as- mildly positive. <laughs> yes. <laughs> He was waiting online next to a seven-foot-tall Chewbacca and a okay. crepe, at a crepe restaurant uh, with uh, a giant crowd down. Bruins fans who were yelling, we got the cup, and taking flash photographs, which caused the PAs to have to stop the shot a couple of times. Um, okay, but no, and, we, and Mila Kunis wasn't there. Uh, is that a positive or a negative? That she wasn't there? Probably a positive. I can't sure. recall seeing her in anything where I was like, wow, she was really good. <laughs> Which is not – I don't know if that's fair or not. I mean Black Swan, can she be blamed? She's not even really her own person in that movie. But Yeah, I still haven't seen that one. Oh, Black Swan? Yeah. It's not, it's not like, like the book at all. It's totally different from the book. Um, the book has a lot more uh, fractals and discussion of gender distributions and the right. movie has a lot more ladies uh, in fancy uh, yeah. dances. I really thought he uh, – McDowell should have been in that movie himself as the ballerina. <laughs> that would have been sort of an example of a black swan. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Oh, man. So, yeah. So, I guess Game of Thrones has come to a close. I haven't really been excited about a TV show like this probably since, what, Battlestar Galactica? 
Um, and even then, this was I didn't get that excited about it. But I mean, I guess this this TV show ending, uh, it seems like at least on the Twitterverse, there's a fair amount of buzz about it. Uh, people are kind of excited about it. But I mean, are we are we? This TV show is really ambitious in its production, and it seems really expensive. Um, I guess they're banking on selling a whole crud ton of DVDs, right? I suppose. Um, and they will. They will. I suppose so. Yeah, that's that's probably fair. Uh, um, I was equally excited for Boardwalk Empire, uh, but and then really stopped after two or three episodes. Did you guys watch that at all? Well, I'm looking at the numbers for it, and then after the third episode, after the first episode, the numbers drop by like a third, and after the third episode, they drop by another third. So you were not the only one who lost interest quickly. I did not watch the show. Uh, I pretty much only made time for, for the Game of Thrones this time around. Um, well, I want to thank uh, the millions of people who listened to my advice and stopped watching after the third <laughs> episode. Uh, but oh, we all know who has the real Boardwalk Empire, right? The, the Boardwalk Empire in the real world uh, is on Asbury Park and belongs to the musical stylings of Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band, which, of course, suffered a great loss uh, today, Mark? Yesterday? Yesterday. The news Yesterday. broke late Saturday, uh, June uh, 18th. Right. And, and I'm not saying that Bruce Springsteen has left us, God forbid, uh, but Clarence Clemens, the big man, uh, the, the legendary saxophonist who has played, uh, of course, on the equally legendary, uh, although you know, only by, you know, by association legendary, Born to Run album and other Bruce Springsteen albums, Born in the USA, and then has more recently been the saxophone player for Lady Gaga, uh, has, has passed on. And I know Mark wrote a really touching piece about him. Um, Mark, since we've left you out in the cold of the north of Winterfell on the first half an hour of the podcast. Don't question what I just said or why. Uh, why don't you talk a little bit about Clarence and what he means to you, and then we'll chime in there. John, uh, Josh, have you ever listened to music? Because um, then you can uh, contribute if you listen to music. So let me put this yeah. in terms. Let me turn this in terms you guys understand. So okay. you know Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. Uh, they're in this sort of medieval universe, <laughs> and they go to brothels, and this guy and Springsteen's head gets chopped off. Oh my! Grizzly. Spoilers. Uh, yeah, some of us haven't listened to Darkness <laughs> on the Edge of Town yet. Okay, <laughs> but it's but it's, but it's uh, they, they pick it up in a really nice red bandana though, so uh, <laughs> it's, it's decorated. That's awesome. That's awesome. Okay, so Clarence Clemens. Is that the Rising is that when they look yeah. at? <laughs> <laughs> brains. Uh. Oh. All right, Clarence Clemens. I think uh, everybody on the internet sort of grieved simultaneously uh, together. And felt his loss because, uh, you know, Springsteen's music is obviously hugely popular. Everybody can relate to it. And uh, people readily pointed to his solo in Jungle Land, right? The 10-minute epic song that closes out Born to Run as being the quintessential Clarence Clemens moment. This, like, soaring, powerful sax solo that wraps up all the things you think about with Springsteen. Right, the the drama, the the sort of the the, the R and B influenced rock and roll uh, with that, and the and the saxophone that somehow encapsulates encapsulates the urban drama that he uh, creates with his music. Right, you follow me mm-hmm. so far? Yep. And so um, that that sound, that saxophone sound, you know, has been a soundtrack to a lot of people's lives for over the last thirty years or so, and we are naturally feeling that loss. Yeah. So. I'm not going to recap everything that I wrote about in the uh, in the obituary. You should go and read it for yourself on the on the on the site. I'm uh, pretty pleased with how that turned out. I, think, I thought it was a fitting tribute for one of my favorite musicians. So what I want to talk about with you guys more broadly actually is Clarence Clemens' instrument and uh, his uh, 
primary tool, that, that being the saxophone solo. Okay. Which, yeah, I was, which, I was just thinking that, that really not since the 80s has there been like a, a large quantity of saxophone in the popular culture. Yeah, the saxophone has very much gone out of style, which is, was kind of weird why Clarence Clemens shows up on a Lady Gaga song, tooting his horn. <laughs> right? Well, Lady Gaga wants to make everything old new again, right? Uh, although I suppose every ambitious artist wants to do that. But yeah, I, I think um, saxophone, I, I remember when I was picking a band instrument back when I was a kid, you know, saxophone was the thing that everybody wanted. I mean, I wanted trombone for some reason, but saxophone was the thing that everybody wanted um, because it was cool. It was like a real instrument. Um, was I mean, this you know, around the same it, time know. that uh, President Clinton, Bill Clinton, came onto the scene and played the sax on the Arsenio Hall show? It actually is. That's about the right, about there the same go. time, about contemporaneous. Yeah, right when I was around twelve. Um, yeah, we had a president who played the saxophone. That's right. Uh, I don't think does Obama play any musical instruments. We should ask him. Does he play guitar or something? Does he play like piano? Yeah, traditional Ken- Ken- traditional Kenyan stringed instruments. I presume exactly. <laughs> the gourd with a string on it. <laughs> yeah, that. <laughs> I was going to go with it has Kansas, name, but I, I I don't know what it is, but it has a name. <laughs> so, oh man. Actually, the, the, the last really, like, truly glorious I'm, – I'm thinking of cinema now in particular, but, like, I feel like the saxophone declined after Lost Boys because you had the pinnacle of the sax solo there, which is, like, the sweaty, topless man. Do you guys remember this at all? In the Lost Boys, the vampire movie with – Yeah. And, uh, it's the single greatest saxophone scene of all time. Um, <laughs> I'm sure, like, if Schechner were here, he would, he would just go insane until – for those who don't know, our friend Schechner is just an absolute virtuoso sax player. And I'm fairly certain that it was that scene that inspired him, uh, largely because of the abs involved. <laughs> <laughs> Does the sax player have the abs, or is the sax player playing yeah, uh, the, sa- the sax player is, is, like, stripped to the waist and, like, oiled and in front of a crowd of, like, screaming thousands uh, with fire around him. And it really, it's in, like, 88 or whatever, it was the epitome of badass. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's interesting because I think if you look back at the music that Bruce Springsteen sort of precedes Bruce Springsteen in the sort of, uh, you know, uh, party, large, instrumental, heavy band arrangements, like if you look back at funk music, the saxophone doesn't really play a tremendously large, like, outsized part relative to other wind instruments, right? Like in funk music. Um, I mean, it's not really a, a rock and roll instrument. I mean, they play it, you know, it's there. But I don't remember, like, none of the, you know, you don't, when we go through the major players of, like, you know, the, the Funk Brothers and, like, the people who were with James Brown and with Motown and with Stax and all these other people, there aren't a lot of sax players. And maybe Jordan can really jump to the fore and, and when he re- listens to this or when I email him later and, and tell me, like, oh, no, you forgot X legendary person you should obviously remember, you idiot. Um, but I don't, but the thing is, what I'm getting to is that prior to Clarence Clemens, I'm not sure the saxophone really was all that big of a deal, Right. In, these, in this music. Like, maybe it's like, oh, why is it it's so weird that the saxophone has gone away? Maybe the aberration was when the saxophone was big in the first place, right? It's like, well, maybe this is the, the influence that Clarence Clemens had, because that Born to Run album is so tremendously influential and so in, in, incredibly powerful, a cultural force, um, in really kind of transforming the, the rock music you know, milieu. Um, well, I, mean, I don't know. So, I mean, I feel like it was, it was big in jazz, right? Well, yeah, um, yeah true. But then sort of for most of our lives, the, the person most associated with the saxophone has been Kenny G. <laughs> right, right, right. Or, I'm, I'm or, serious about that. Like that's – I mean when you think about like – so you know, when I was growing up, you heard the saxophone during the romantic scene of whatever movie you happen to be watching. Mm-hmm. And when someone put on the Kenny G Christmas album, like mm-hmm. those are the only times I really remember hearing it. And I think that you know, so for our generation, that was uh, 
it was less something to aspire to, really. I, I think the other thing that our generation uh, associates the saxophone with is Lisa Simpson. Let's not forget that. <laughs> Fair enough. Rather than, you know, Coltrane. But yeah, so I guess when you think of sax prior to, to like, Springsteen, you don't think of this sort of, like, uh, jam and dance music. It's like it's more like Coltrane, you know? It's like like jazz. Like, I mean, like There are a few stuff. notable examples of the saxophone yeah. in Motown music. I'm particularly oh. thinking of Junior Walker and the All-Stars Shotgun. Okay. Which starts off with a... I actually didn't, I didn't catch that. Could you, could you do that again? <laughs> awesome. Can we get that on a soundboard? Can we make like the overthinking it soundboard and you could push that button and uh, you can have Mark going like... I actually just think that's the title of this podcast. <laughs> awesome. Uh, um, yeah. The, uh, I had just a physics question. I've actually sort of, uh, having having been in a number of, of music ensembles that had saxophones, I feel like they're just not as loud as some of the others, right? Like a trumpet at full bore and a saxophone at full bore, you're not going to hear the saxophone. Am I well, right about yeah. that? But if you're in a professional band, you should be playing the balance. I mean, I guess as a drummer, you never really think about that sort of no, thing. No, I, I just <laughs> play louder than all of you for fun. Yeah. But, um, but I do feel like I just, you know, there's... I mean, that that at some point, you know, when you're playing a rock show, like, the louder the better in a lot of cases. So, like, even when, like, a, uh, like the horn section stands up and is playing, you're just not hearing as much sax as you are a bone or a trumpet. Right, right, right. Huh, interesting. I, actually, you know, I, I, I definitely – Mark, you just forwarded this great resource – what is it on the slate where they talk about uh, top sax solos? And it looks like there's a bunch of rock sax solos uh, before Jungle Land, before Born to Run, going back into the the uh, the Rolling Stones and and, uh, and Steely Dan and and the uh, uh, although that was after and Earth Wind and Fire, of course. So that, I guess that's kind of funky. That's that's funky enough. Um, so it looks like something that comes out of the '70s and then into the '80s. And so it's not fair to give Clarence total credit for all of it but it's definitely something that kind of emerged and then and then went away um that's you know game of thrones should have used more sax solos they should have sax music playing whenever Tyrion lannister came on screen like (laughs) anyway uh, (laughs) so why did the sax go away then uh well instruments went away right like um Mm. uh, now you don't wouldn't use an actual saxophone you'd use a clip i mean you might use a sample from it but i mean i guess what what well what made sax, sax what really made Saxophones. I mean, let's conjecture because I obviously don't know. So let's no, make I think some you're right, guesses. Pete. Instruments did go away. Right? Yeah. Outside of let's say uh, you know a, a bass, right? Yeah. You know, many drums can be just pretty much sampled. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was a sad day. We were like the first humans to be replaced by robots. <laughs> we being hey, it's coming for everyone, but drummers were first. Oh. <laughs> John Henry would like a word with you, sir. But uh, okay, fair <laughs> enough. Railroad spike drivers are up there. Um, I guess not robots, but same same difference. Um, yeah, interesting. But I, I think that when you see when you so first of all, rock and roll kind of went away, right? Like Bruce Springsteen was this sort of like second or third or eighty billionth coming of rock and roll, and uh, as you as you as rock and roll kind of pared down, and the large bands. Uh, Gave way first to sort of these hyper-produced, really super-polished, uh, electronically influenced uh, pieces, uh, and then at the same time, as a as a backlash against that, you didn't see the uh, the big bands come through. You saw the small bands come through, like the grunge bands and the three-piece bands, and you know guitarists that are layering over each other. You did have the sort of swing return, right? And I'm talking about when the '80s gave way to the '90s. You had kind of a a, a a bit of a backlash. It's like the late in the late eighties, you had 
music moving towards more synthesized use, and, and you had rap and hip-hop that were starting to make uh, – assert themselves in the culture, and music started feeling a lot more kind of like high, high, uh, high technology uh, in a lot of ways, more associated with the instruments of recording than the instruments of vibration and of uh, you know, air manipulation. And um, – and then from there, you sort of diverge, right, where you get, you get like R&B, hip-hop, rap, which takes a big chunk of the popular music pie. And then in there, pop kind of fuses in, and you have that sort of contemporary rhythmic genre that, that radio stations love to play. And then you have this sort of like backlash of, we're still going to listen to rock music, F you guys, which is like, you know, which was like grunge music and all that other stuff. And then that genre has kind of continued to kind of atrophy. I mean, I know that there's like, you know, there are thriving ind- independent rock scenes, but they're nothing like what it used to be in terms of commanding the overall minds of the populace right i did always think that uh, pearl jam's jeremy would have been better with a sax solo right in the middle of it <laughs> jeremy spoken <laughs> yeah i think that'll Perfect. work <laughs> nailed it <laughs> cut and print yeah that's true I, that would actually be a fun project to like take all of nevermind and just like splice sax solos in the middle of every song other than guitar solos it would be really interesting to hear i think i think someone needs to get on that nonsense schechner schechner a member of our own team yes pet, 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 uh, paging dr schechner phd definitely um I mean, there is that hilarious YouTube video of the guy playing the Careless Whisper sax solo in all those public places as he is removed forcibly by security. Uh, have you guys seen that one? Wait, Careless um, Whispers being what you were seeing earlier, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's – and he's like, don't you guys like saxophone? And then I think while he's being led away by security from some sort of ba- some sort of marshals or something, someone yells, hey, play that George Michael song, <laughs> uh, which he was doing previously. Um, so it is a joke. You know, it's part of our consciousness. It's gone away for whatever reason. Um, I'm, I'm sure that nowadays, you know, the audiences are so fragmented that I'm sure if you wanted to find rock with saxophones in it, you could search for it, I suppose. Right? You could find people who still do it, but it wouldn't be the kind of huge thing that Clarence Clemens was. Um, not, well, literally know, and physically a huge thing. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, but, you know, you know circle of, you know, the wheel of time turns and ages come and go and all that other nonsense. That's the wrong franchise, but you get my drift. Um, so yeah, I think I it's know. safe to say then that Clarence Clemens' solo in the Lady Gaga song, uh, The Edge of Glory, which probably deserves an overthinking and treatment at some point, uh, but that solo is not going to herald any revival of the sax solo. That's possible. Well, but that song just came out as a single, right? Like, that song is, like, the next big song that's out, right? Ostensibly so, yes, but I don't know if, if we if we have time to get into this, but have you guys seen the music video? I have not. It's I was extremely, watching It's little, extremely like, stripped down. Oh, um, yeah. Presumably uh, intentionally stripped down. Basically, it's Lady Gaga and, you know, some uh, outfit, not particularly outrageous, just, you know, sort of leather, typical thing, yep. right? Uh, in an urban landscape, you know, like you got your fire escapes and your uh, brick buildings and the steam coming out, um, sort of this noirish vision of New York. And Clarence Clemens sitting on a stoop. Fire in them? Did he have what? Trash cans with fire in them. To me, that's <laughs> the only thing that says urban landscape. <laughs> Not, there should have been, actually. That would have, would have completed the tableau. Nice. Um, no, but Clarence Clemens is, sta- is sitting on a stoop and Lady Gaga is dancing on the fire escape. And that's basically the video. Interesting. Interesting. That feels kind of 80s a little bit. That feels like a bit of a throwback. Oh, yeah. It, it definitely feels very 80s. Yeah. Then yeah, they yeah. dance with a cartoon cat. <laughs> <laughs> very nice. Very nice. Awesome. So, yeah, I guess that's an unfortunate timing. Do you think there was foul play? Do you think that Clarence was off to raise awareness and popularity of this music video? 
That is the most logical explanation. Yeah, I, I really believe in Occam's razor, which is that if there was a possibility that it was something was caused by a razor, it probably was. Um, <laughs> <laughs> fair, fair enough. Fair enough. Oh, Why man. is my face hurt and bumpy? <laughs> Occam's razor. Zing. <laughs> swish, swish. Ha ha. You've been razored. <laughs> and I spell razor like R-A-Z-O-R apostrophe D. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. That happens to people in Game of Thrones too. They get they get razor. Um, <laughs> so let me uh, ask this question. Maybe this will sort of serve as a bookend to our to the Clarence Clemens discussion. Is that you know we we go through these you know different rounds of of mourning of celebrity deaths, right? Um, you know, Macho Man Randy Savage came and went. Yeah. Like everybody, yeah. like for a moment was like, oh, I remember snapping to Slim Jim. Oh, yeah. you know, and then kind of went on their lives. I mean, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, Michael Jackson passed, and that was obviously a huge deal, right? Yes. Even a year after that happened, there were like you know when your anniversaries of it, um, and then sort of you all go spool all the way back to Elvis, right? Every year, uh, I think in August, uh, the anniversary of his death, uh, there is a you know it's Elvis Day at Graceland, basically. People come out in droves to you know to memorialize the king. I was actually there one year for the you know like the 35th anniversary or some sort uh, of his death, and it was a really freaking big deal. So yeah. where I'm going with this is sort of the maybe macabre uh, line of questioning, which is what's going to happen when Springsteen dies? I think the odds are pretty high that everybody that's listening, most people that listen to this podcast will live to see the day when Springsteen passes from this earth. What is that going to be like? Well, there'll be a new album called Born Again. <laughs> oh. <laughs> the rising. No, I think The rising from the dead. Um. But at the same time, it probably won't be for a while, right? Uh, hopefully, you know. Hopefully. God willing. Um, this seems pretty tough. Yeah, I think, I think this is one of the reasons why uh, – so, so when, we think about, when we think about death, um, one of the things that comes up with regards to death is, is – uh, gosh, what is it? The, 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 a person who exists in the present, like you know, a, a, a day scene or dust scene, however you want to pronounce it, a thing that it, for a being for which being is an issue uh, is a different sort of thing than a thing that has already existed, than a person who has lived and died and is gone, right? Because a person who's lived and died and is gone is no longer concerned with existing, as the, at least in terms of how we identify this person uh, uh, semiotically, semantically. Um, where you know when we talk about Abraham Lincoln, we're not talking about like the experience of Abraham Lincoln getting up in the morning and and deciding not to shave, right? Because like no, I like this beard, I'm going to keep it. Uh, like like we can imagine what it would be like because through sort of association of our own experiences with his to to be the Abraham Lincoln who is sort of in vivo, who is sort of like the the being for whom being is an issue. Abraham Lincoln who exists as Abraham Lincoln, uh, but it's a very different thing, and that's what the Carl Sandburg poem is about, right? Like the cool tombs, and he doesn't care about you know Grant or any of that other. stuff stuff anymore um celebrities are tricky because to many of us whom whom we never going to meet them and even if we meet them it's sort of in passing they they don't really strike us as dasins like they don't really strike us as beings who are themselves concerned with existing right they are things that exist um by virtue of our being relative to them and and observing them right like lady lady gaga the entity there's a reason lady gaga doesn't use a real name other than that it's not particularly show show business worthy is that like she's creating this image this construction of this thing that we're all watching right and and like she's very conscious of that and that that whole act um so celebrities to a degree aren't really alive 
in in the sense that like our imagination of them as objects tends to preclude the idea that they actually exist in themselves as beings. Um, right, and as such, like their deaths are strange to us. It's difficult for us to deal. With. I think people don't really mourn celebrities all that much um, in a sincere way, the same way they would mourn the loss of a loved one, because they don't really associate celebrities with living people. And I'm not saying that people are stupid or that they can't make the connection. I just think that the discourse around celebrities uh, drink um, it reinforces that kind of thinking. And then it's like these are symbols. They're heroes. They're 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 idols, right? Well, right. And, and the death is part of the story. It's yeah. not the end of the story. I mean, right. you know, people that, yeah. to 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 many people like Michael Jackson as that popular culture figure is still very much a p- yeah part of their, their lives. I mean, uh, let me ask you this: Does the Jim Morrisonness of Jim Morrison increase after he dies? Like uh, to Jim Morrison, no, but to the rest of us, yes. You know, I'm sorry, I interrupted. What was the answer that you were going to give to the question? Well, I think to the naked Indian, also yes, but to the rest <laughs> of us, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, that's I mean, that's one of the reasons why I like writing. Uh, I don't. It's unfair to call them obituaries because we don't generally do proper obituaries. They're more like elegies when we write these sort of meditations on these um, celebrities as they die because it's 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 kind of important to think of them as people. Um, just out of uh, out of more of the categorical imperative than, than anything else, the, you know the uh, the desire to treat them as human beings, not really as a means to our own entertainment, but also just have some sympathy for the stuff that they go through as living beings like us. Um, unless, of course, the dead or undead are listening to this podcast, in which case, let us know and we'll cover True Blood or um, you know anything else you like. If you like uh, interview with a vampire, some Anne Rice, I don't know, whatever you like. Um, that's that's the real they, market demographic we need to reach with this podcast. Yeah, exactly, the living dead. The Living Dead. And if you're an alien hearing this millions of years from now, uh, um, I don't know. What, is there something from an M. Night Shyamalan movie we can tell them to scare them? I don't think we, there is. No, but you just warned them to not see it. Yeah, see <laughs> that's true. If you are hearing this, don't watch Signs. It's really disappointing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> aliens. Still come to Earth, but like, don't rent Signs. Although there probably won't be video rental stores unless you get here really fast. And given the speed of light, it's probably not likely that there will still be video rental stores by the time you arrive <laughs> in 10 but billion years. They'll come and they'll, you know, they'll rent Signs and then they'll form like the Alien Anti-Defamation League. <laughs> Nobody listens. Nobody listens. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! So you know what else? Uh, you know what else? Nobody listens to is wait. wait that's a bad segue because we want people to listen. Are we? We're hitting our time, right, Marcus? Time for us to wrap this puppy up. Yeah, give me time if we if we want it. If we so choose. If we so choose. If we so choose. Well, never never seek to know for whom the podcast ends. It ends for thee. <laughs> oh, uh, and and where <laughs> where can you get more information on celebrities living and dead? On little people, handsome and ugly. On uh, saxophones, past, present, and future. Well, nowhere other than on www.overthinkingit.com, the website that subjects the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably, it probably doesn't... doesn't deserve. So I was thinking Jim Morrison, Lizard King in the North. <laughs> Cut and print. <laughs> I was trying to figure out a way to work that into the actual podcast, but couldn't do it. <laughs> can, we, can we do a quick Green Lantern shout out here? Like, oh, what, yeah. what, what would... Like, if, you know, this could have been the question, right? What would it have taken for uh, for you to go see the Green Lantern movie? Oh, okay. Um, brightest day and or darkest night, neither of which took place this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> Better weather, um, that's your excuse? 
Uh, I suppose so. I should be like, yeah, in brightest day and darkest night, this movie won't escape my sight. But if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Wait, I don't know Amen. how to say it. I like it. All right. uh, I think guaranteed giant green imaginary penis. <laughs> Cut and print. <laughs>